0: I'll be reading from Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. And they went to a place called the Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of God.
1: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Joyce. On December 5th, 1914, a guy named Ernest Shackleton had a goal to cross Antarctica by dog sled. It was a 1,500-mile journey across the most inhospitable terrain on earth, and so he gathered a crew of 27 men, and they set out on a ship named Endurance, and for six weeks, they attempted just to get there, and finally... Their ship became frozen into the ice pack. There was nothing they could do but hunker down for the whole winter and wait for the spring, and hopefully the ice would release the ship when it thawed. After 10 months in a wooden ice prison, spring finally arrived, but when it did, the ice didn't release the ship, it crushed it. And at this point, Shackleton gathered his men together. He announced, I have a new mission. The new mission is not to cross Antarctica. The new mission is to get every man home safely. And so they set up camp on a giant ice floe. They hoped that it would float to an island where they had provisions stored. And Shackleton devoted every waking moment to preserving his men's health and their morale and their unity. He would go from tent to tent every day, checking on each man. And when spirits began to uh, sag, he would order the cook to come up with some new Drink hot drink or something, or you'd call for a talent show or something crazy like that. And the ice they were floating on, they soon realized, wasn't going the right way. It was carrying them out to sea. They had three lifeboats that they had recovered from the endurance, and they had to use them. After seven days and nights fighting powerful currents, freezing rains, and massive icebergs, they finally made it to an uninhabited slab of rock called Elephant Island, and for the first time in 497 days, they set foot on land, but they weren't even really close to home. Elephant Island was a barren and isolated place. No one on earth knew that they were there. Their provisions were running out, and Shackleton determined that their only hope was to take one of the boats and sail to a whaling station that was 800 miles away. And so he took a portion of his men, he left others behind, he promised the 22 that he would left behind, I will come back for you, you will get home. And they thought, if anybody can save us, it's Shackleton. And so for 14 days, this very small boat battled gale force winds, 20 foot high seas, navigational readings were dicey, and if they were off just a degree, they would be lost out to sea, And on the 14th day, they finally spotted land, but the outgoing tide wouldn't let them land. And so they had to spend another night in the boat. And that night, a hurricane hit. And for nine hours, they fought for their lives. Finally, the next morning, they were able to land on a rocky cove. But then they discovered that they were on the wrong side of the island. And this island had never been charted The only way was to go across it. It was 22 miles of mountainous terrain that nobody had ever crossed before. Shackleton took a couple of other guys, and for 36 hours straight, they marched and finally stumbled like corpses into the whaling camp. Shackleton allowed himself exactly one night's sleep before he set out to go back for his men. He had to acquire a ship. He had to recross all the hazardous waters. His first three attempts absolutely failed. The sea ice prevented him from reaching his men. His hair at this time literally turned from brown to gray with worry over them. But on his fourth try, Shackleton made it through the ice. And as he approached the island, he saw the men gathering on the shoreline to to meet him, and he began to count, one, two, three. And it wasn't until he got to the number 22 that he breathed a sigh of relief. They're all there. They're all well. And Shackleton kept his word and delivered every one of his men safely home. And that's what we're talking about today. That's a picture of loyalty. That's a picture of commitment. That's a picture of our word for today, faithfulness. What we're doing is taking a scenic route through a list that Paul gives in Galatians chapter 5. And the list is made up of outcomes that happen when we turn our life over to the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit begins to direct the path. And what we find is that the Spirit leads us into all kinds of wonderful outcomes. Joy, love, peace, patience. Paul calls all of these outcomes the fruit of the Spirit. And God wants you to have more of all of these things. And the irony is that these things are what you are already trying to get more of anyway. And God wants that for you. And so today we come to this word faithfulness. And each week we've been running each one of these words through about four questions. Number one, what is this aspect of the fruit that we're supposed to cultivate? Number two, what's the weed we need to get rid of? Uh, Number three, is there some fake or imitation of it to watch out for? And then number four, uh, what is the way to more of this? And so we've also committed together to memorize this famous text in Galatians 5, and uh, we're going to other texts to figure out what these words mean. But here's Galatians 5, and if you'll read it with me, fill in in the blanks. We've put some more words back so that you can kind of begin to cement them in your mind a little better. Read with me. But the fruit of the is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Very good and that's from Galatians 5:22 and 23. Very good. Good job. What is faithfulness? The Greek word is the word pistis, which is a word for faith in all of the scriptures. It's one of the most common and important words that we find in scripture. Faith is the basis of our relationship with God. And faithfulness is just a variation of that word. And so this word means loyalty. It means honesty. It means integrity. It means truthfulness. It has to do with dependability and follow through. It's somebody who is responsible and keeps their promises. It is this, to be utterly reliable and true to your word. That's what faithfulness is. It's keeping your past and your present together. It's keeping your word no matter what. It's Shackleton staying true to his word and saving his men no matter the cost. And so we're going to define faithfulness so that you can remember it this way. There is a one blank here, and it's only to be filled in with your name. Okay, so when we come to the blank in this definition, fill in your name. Here's the definition. Faithfulness is being the same, I'm going to use dusty because that's my name, right? Faithfulness is being the same dusty today as I vowed to be yesterday. Put your name in the blank and say that together. Can we all say it together? Here we go. Faithfulness is being the same dusty today as I vowed to be yesterday. Yesterday. That's faithfulness. The realm in which we talk about faithfulness the most might be marriage. Um, we stand together as couples and we take vows of faithfulness. We say, I will be with you for better, for worse. For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, I will be there for you until my dying day. And because we take those vows of faithfulness, what we do is we, when we see faithfulness that lasts 30 years and 40 years and 50 years and 60 years, we celebrate that. Why? Because we know that that's rare. It's hard to find faithfulness. We kind of have a crisis of faithfulness wherever we look. Whether it's institutions, whether it's businesses, whether it's pensions, whether it's government, whether it's church, whether it's marriages, we have a crisis of faithfulness. I read of one man who, because of the increasing trend towards unfaithfulness in marriage, he stopped giving place settings as a wedding gift. Instead, he now gives paper plates. Because, in his opinion, the odds are that the paper plates will last just about as long as the marriage will. Unfortunate, right? Loyalty and commitment and faithfulness are rare commodities these days. It's hard to know who to count on, who to trust. Lewis Smedes writes this, that somewhere, somewhere, people still make and keep promises. They choose not to quit when the going gets rough because they promised once to see it through. They stick to lost causes. They hold on to a love grown cold. They stay with people who have become pains in the neck. They still dare to make promises and care enough to keep the promises that they make. And I have to ask, where is somewhere? He says, somewhere, that's true. Where is somewhere? It seems like somewhere at least ought to be within the followers of Jesus. Surely the body of Christ is a place where people can keep their word to one another. They are faithful to one another, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's difficult or costly. But even from the start, from the very beginning, followers of Jesus have been very fickle in their faithfulness. And Jesus gets a taste of it in our text. In Mark chapter 14, the text that was read, Jesus is at the most crucial juncture of his life. He knows his time is up and the cross is only hours away and he wants some quiet time with God to gain strength. And he asks his closest friends, his disciples, he says, would you just look out for me? Would you just keep watch while I go over here and pray? Would you help me? I know you're on my side. Could you watch out? Sure, no problem, Jesus. Thank you. And he goes and he prays. And he comes back a little while later. And what does he find? He finds his disciples sleeping. He wakes them up. I thought you were on the lookout. I thought you were going to watch out for me. Yeah, 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 we'll, we'll do that. No problem. He goes back again and prays some more. He comes back a second time. And Peter and James and John and the rest are sleeping. And this happens three times. The disciples couldn't even be faithful even to watch out for Jesus at the time of his greatest need. And it's in their sleep that we see the opposite of faithfulness. We see the weed that we need to try to get rid of. And the weed we're going to call opportunism. And I need to explain that. That's what we need to get rid of to cultivate this thing called faithfulness. Unfaithfulness is a failure of our behavior that's rooted in a weakness of character. It's actually to split and to become two different people, to become different than what we said we would be. And the disciples have split in this picture into different people. One part of them, their spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but their spirit said, yes, Jesus, we will watch out for you. But the other part, the flesh of them said, ah, I'm done, I can't look out, I'm tired. And they were split into two parts. And we're using this word called opportunism to describe the weed that we need to get rid of because the times that we split into two different people are usually times when we're under pressure. We want approval. We want better circumstances. We want more opportunities for ourselves. And so opportunism. Probably the easiest example of opportunism would be to think back to the days of uh, prom, think back to the days of homecoming, think back to the days of twerp dances, right? They still do that, I, I learned this week. Uh, you, you have, I want you to put yourself in those shoes, and I want you to imagine you've been asked by somebody to go to the dance, okay? And they're nice, right? They're not repulsive to you. And so, yeah, you say yes, yeah, sure, no problem, it's a date, but then, oh, well, you know what happens, right? You get the call that you never thought you'd get, and it's from him, or it's from her. And this person walks down the hall of the school with a heavenly glow around them, right? You never thought in a in the in a million years that they would be interested in you. You never thought that you were in their league, but here it is, they're on the line. They're asking you, do you want to go to prom? Do you want to can I buy us matching shirts with sequin unicorns and take you to Twerp? What do you do? Opportunism says, Oh, heck yeah! Let's go! Who was that other person on the uh, Ask Me Out? I, don't, I have no idea. I don't know. Heck with them. I'm moving up. I'm, I'm improving my place in the social structure, bigger and better, right? I love sequin unicorns and I need a t-shirt like that. Yeah, absolutely, I'll go. And of course, your opportunism means unfaithfulness to that original date. And for them, that night means a box of Kleenex and a tub of ice cream instead of corsages and a t-shirt, And what happened was we wanted more approval, we wanted better circumstances, we wanted more opportunity, and so faithfulness goes out the window. That's the weed. You said one thing and you did another. You're a split person. And I think there's a test for this uh, to assess our faithfulness to Jesus, and it's found in Jesus coming back to the disciples. And because they didn't know he would come back. He didn't ever say, I'm going to come back to check on you, but he did. And when he did, he found them doing something other than what he asked them to do. And so I think there's the test. A lady came up to John Wesley once and said, suppose you're going to, you know that you're going to die at 12 o'clock midnight tomorrow night. What do you spend the rest of your hours doing? And he replied this way. He said, Madam, I would spend those hours just as I intend to spend them now. I would preach tonight and then again at five o'clock tomorrow morning because that's where I'm scheduled and then I would ride to another place and I would preach in the afternoon and I'm scheduled to meet with some people tomorrow uh, evening and then I would go to the place where I'm supposed to stay and I would be entertained by them and I would probably pray with them before I go to bed at 10 o'clock and then I will commend myself to my heavenly father. I will lie down, rest and wake up in glory. In other words, he said, I wouldn't change a thing. St. Francis of Assisi was hoeing his garden, and he was asked the same thing. If you were to suddenly learn, if you were to suddenly learn, St. Francis, that you are going to die at sunset, what would you do? He said, I would keep hoeing my garden. (laughs) There's the test. If you know Jesus is coming back in an hour, in a day, or this Friday... What would you do? Is the answer, I would keep hoeing. Is the answer, I would follow the same schedule I have now. Could that be a test of our faithfulness? If Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do tonight? And if it's anything radically different than you have planned for tonight, if you have to change who you are so that you can hope to be approved when you meet Jesus, then maybe... Maybe you're a split person when it comes to faithfulness in Jesus. Or think about it this way: this is another way to put it. If I uh, told you that you were had had been asked to throw out the first pitch at the Royals game at Kauffman Stadium this Friday night, how would you spend the rest of your week? <laughs> You know how you would spend the rest of your week. You'd be in your backyard with a bucket of baseballs, chucking them at the fence, hoping that they wouldn't go over, right? You would spend the entire week getting ready for that night because you have to do everything possible so that you don't end up viral on social media throwing out the first pitch. You have to do everything so that you maintain... um, approval so that you, don't, you avoid a disgrace. And when Friday comes, even with a week of practice, you have to hope and you have to pray that your weaknesses don't show up. That's opportunism. That's the opposite of faithfulness. If, on the other hand, if some people that were a part of our church were asked to throw the first pitch out Friday night at Kauffman Stadium, if a guy named Dave was asked, who actually is a pitching coach at the major league level, if a guy named Mason, who is a college Division I player, was asked to throw the first pitch, if even one of our high school kids named Dryden, who pitches for the Tigers, if he was asked to throw out the first pitch this Friday night, what would those three guys do differently this week? Answer, way less than you or me. Why? Why? Because they'd be fine. They don't have to learn how to pitch because they're already faithful to baseball. Do you get that? The pitcher's mound is 60 feet, six inches, no matter if it's at Dave Ringett Stadium or Kauffman Stadium. So those guys are good. They're the same person. They're not split when it comes to throwing a baseball. They don't have to contort and to twist into something that they're not. And that's faithfulness. And so to be an opportunist, is to be a friend or a follower only when it's beneficial. Only in the good times. And the disciples are there. We could excuse them maybe for being tired, except there's way more than just sleepiness going on here. Luke, in his parallel passage about this event, says that the disciples were exhausted from sorrow. What's what's going on? The answer is this, the disciples had expectations for 3 years they have followed jesus they've watched jesus talk of the coming kingdom they've watched him back up his words with miracle after miracle and they see how this is shaping up that nothing can stop jesus not even storms on the lake i mean he's he has authority over those and so He's finally going to do what we've all needed somebody to do. He's going to march into Jerusalem and he's going to kick Rome out of Jerusalem and he's going to take back to the promised land and Jesus will be king. And guess what we'll be? Well, we'll be really well off because we're his right hand guys. And they thought he would be king and they thought that they would be in power with him. But this last week of his life, all of that has flown out the window those ideas have been crushed because Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem on a white horse. He rode in on a donkey and he solicited the title of king for himself. That didn't sit well with the authorities. Then he went and cleared out the temple and attacked the whole Jewish sacrificial system. And he's, what he's doing is he's forcing the hands of his enemies. He's saying, king me or kill me. And it turns out they want to kill him. It's not turning out the way the disciples thought. They had faith in Jesus, the overthrower, but not in this kind of Jesus. And on top of that, he keeps talking about this betrayer and they know it's not going to end well and the disciples are splitting. They're drifting into opportunism. They're becoming fair weather friends. Their faith is not in a Jesus, um, a dying Jesus, a suffering Jesus as much as it was in the positions that he was going to help them get. And that's now gone and they're done. And sleep is just a consequence of those dashed dreams. They are exhausted with sorrow. And more often than not, I find myself in the circle with the disciples. Faithfulness, if there's a picture of it, is like a huge rock on the seashore. And the waves come in, and they beat that rock. They cover it. But then they always recede, and the rock is still there. The ocean crashes again and again and again, and every time the rock remains, no matter what, that's faithfulness. And the disciples didn't respond with that. And I don't either. I'm faithful. We all are. But often to the wrong things in life. And we're asleep on Jesus. I want you to think about your lack of faithfulness just in the last few weeks, the many times in the recent past when you've let somebody down, you said you would do something, but you didn't do it. You said you would be there, but you weren't. No, When nobody is looking, we're often not the same. When we're in the dark, there are often things about us that we would never want in the light. And Jesus comes to us and says, would you follow me? And we say, absolutely, Lord. And then he walks away and we become somebody else. And the scripture is right, Jesus is right when he says to his disciples and to us, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that's where the disciples are, that's where we are. How do we change that? How do we get more faithfulness from God? And what can we do so that the Holy Spirit has the best ground to work with? I think it's true that we are all faithful to something. And the question to ask is, Who or what should I be faithful to? And the answer might come from another question. Who or what is ultimately faithful? Hey, podcast listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode. We had some technical difficulties with our sermon, as you can tell. It cut off on us because we ran out of space with our recording equipment. So what I would like to do is to just give you uh, the rest of the sermon just in, a, in an informational kind of way. It's not in a live presentation, but it will suffice and uh, hopefully give you the information that you need. Garrison Keillor was watching a PBS special about a day in the life of a doctor in a hospital. And this special just followed doctors around in a hospital. And in a monologue after he had watched that special Keillor said that it was very distressing to see these doctors talking because they would get around and they would say, uh, well, the patient in room 548 died this morning and uh, the last procedure we did didn't work. And so, okay, well, who has the charts on the patient in room 540 and Keeler says that that was really unnerving. He says this, I had always hoped that when I die in a hospital, my doctor would dissolve into tears and have to at least take the rest of the day off and say something like, gosh, guys, the patient in room 548 just died. I just have to go home. I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. But no, they don't. Instead, they just move on. They say, well, who has the chart for the patient in room 540? And they move right on. And the point is, they have to do that. And in a lighthearted way, Keeler pokes fun at what we all know to be true, that we all have to move on. Why? Because we can't actually be committed totally and fully to anything that's human and passing. None of us have the capacity to be eternally faithful. There's a sense... That we have to have a very loose grip on what we're holding on to because everything changes, everything shifts, everything ends. No matter what your relationship is, whether it's a job, whether it's a family, friend, spouse, no matter what relational chair you're sitting in, every chair will eventually crumble out from under you and eventually we do too. And there's the irony of the problem. What we all want is to have someone forever and unchangeably committed to us, someone who will always be there no matter what. And yet we ourselves cannot be that for anybody else. No one really can. No one can be eternally faithful. One of the reasons we get married, right, is because we want to know that on the day we die, somebody will not only dissolve into tears, but at least take the rest of the day off. There will be finally someone who will be there for us till the end. Here's the problem. The reason he or she is going to go home and take at least the day off and dissolve into tears when you die, guess what, is because now you're not there for them. You're gone. You can't be the anchor for that poor person's soul anymore. And if they die before you, they can't be the anchor for your soul. Do you see what's going on? Your doctor can't be the anchor. Your friendships all pass away. They can't be the lasting anchor. And we ask, is there anything that will last? Is there anyone who can be there for us for all time unchangeably? We could put it this way. Are there any rocks in the universe that will survive the ocean forever? And is there any way we can connect to it if it exists? Now, isn't it odd? That you want someone like that when there isn't anybody like that. The Bible has the answer to this. The Bible says the reason that you want someone like that is because you were created by someone like that. And you want to be back with someone like that that faithfulness and trusting that God will not leave you on the island to perish is absolutely necessary. Your soul has to have an anchor like that. It has to know that someone will be there for you and someone is. And I want to help you see that God is faithful and his faithfulness leads to our faithfulness. You'll never be a person of faithfulness, which is just a person who follows through no matter what. You'll never be a person of faithfulness until you see a God who is faithful to you. So these three things keep in mind. Number one, faithfulness comes from seeing a God who promises more than we expect. In verses 37 and 40, the disciples expected a king, uh, but to them, Jesus was committing suicide this last week of his life. It looked like all was lost, but... Look what came out of Jesus's defeat, ultimate victory for everyone. The disciples thought that he was promising an earthly kingdom, but he promises always. He promises more than we expect, and his promise was an eternal kingdom, not just an earthly kingdom. C.S. Lewis has a picture, maybe you've heard of it, of a child who has never been to the beach And this particular child is playing in the mud and he's making mud pies. And someone comes to this kid and says, hey, I'm going to take you to the beach. Now, this kid has never seen the beach and he can't imagine the beach. And so he says, you know what? No, I I don't don't want to go. I'm just going to stay here. What could this person possibly say? All this person can say is, you know what? You have to trust me because the happiness you found in the mud doesn't compare to the happiness and joy that you'll have at the beach. You have to trust me and what you're really after here in the mud. I'm going to give you that times 10, that times 100 somewhere else. It's called the beach. And that's what God is doing with us. We can trust a God who knows our heart better than we do. And what God wants to do is take you to the beach. He is a God who promises more than we expect. Number two, faithfulness comes from seeing a God who can be obeyed unconditionally. There are some really telling phrases in our text this morning. In verse 36, Jesus prays, Abba, Father. And the closest we have to that phrase is the word, Papa or daddy. It's a child talking to his daddy. And Jesus knew this relationship was about to be lost for the first time in eternity. This relationship that he had had with his daddy forever. And to be cut off from God is called hell. And he's about to be cut off from his daddy. His relationship to God is so much more than ours that what it means is that when he gets cut off, he experiences infinitely and unimaginably more hell than we could ever conceive. Then he prays, remove this cup from me. Cup was an Old Testament metaphor for the wrath of God against evil and sin. And Jesus knows by using this word, he's letting on that. He knows that something beyond mere physical death is coming. It's not just nails in his flesh that's coming. God's wrath is coming at him. Then this text also says that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. The King James Version says he was sore amazed. Um, he was astounded, we could say. Probably the best translation might be this. He was filled with horror. And in the very next breath, in verse 34, he says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Now here's the question, what could horrify the son of God to death? And here's the answer. It's Jesus's prayer. As Jesus prays, his prayer takes a turn that his prayers have never taken before. Always before in prayer the Father gives him a glimpse of heaven. He gives him a perfect relationship. But for the first time ever, the father gives him a glimpse this time about what he's about to experience he begins to experience the suffering of the cross right here in the garden in prayer and his dread and his sorrow and his anxiety is not just because he's facing a dark destiny ahead it's that from eternity he's lived wholly for the father and with the father and he's always come to the father in prayer for solace and he's doing that again before his betrayal but What opens up in front of him is not heaven, but hell itself. For his whole existence, when Jesus turned to God, he got heaven. But this time in the garden, he gets hell. He opens his heart, but there's nothing but darkness. He hears judgment. Perhaps he hears his own words. Depart from me. I never knew you. And the cup has come. And he can see it, he can smell it, he can taste it for the first time. And it's possible that God presents this to Jesus here in the garden because no one is looking. The disciples are asleep. His betrayer and the soldiers haven't yet come. He's in the dark. He's alone. Later on, on the cross, he will be nailed. He will be surrounded. It's hard to turn back at that point. But here, Jesus can split. He can leave. And just like you and I find it really easy to be different in the dark, that's where Jesus is. And God swirls the cup of wrath in front of Jesus. And seeing it, he staggers, he buckles. And to say there is immense pressure to split, to become two different people, to become unfaithful, is woefully inadequate. The incredible temptation here is to just walk away, to be something other than what he's told everyone he was. He could just split. But what does he do? He stands with integrity and fidelity. He obeys unconditionally. He says, not my will, but your will be done. He is faithful. He is perfectly obedient. And the thing to take from that is that he trusted God. Disobedience is always distrust. And you'll never know faithfulness until you see that Jesus, even without God, even in the face of horrific wrath, still trusted him enough to obey. Faithful obedience is trust. But there's one step more. And it's this. Number three, faithfulness comes from seeing a God who is faithful to you. Jesus took this cup. He took God's wrath on himself. But for what? Why did he go through the separation, the darkness, the hell that he was about to experience? Well, here's the answer. If he didn't, we would perish. Us, unfaithful, less than deserving people, people who have fallen asleep on him, people like his disciples, people like you, people like me. An amazing thing about this glimpse into the garden is this. It's the way Jesus's nose is rubbed into our unfaithfulness. This is what you're going to go through. You're going to go through hell and for what? What? You're going to go through this for people who don't care enough about you to keep their eyelids propped open. Jonathan Edwards calls this moment in the garden the greatest act of faithfulness in the history of the universe. Because here's what Jesus could have said. He could have said, why should I... Infinitely greater than all of the angels of heaven and all of the kings of earth take this burning agony into my heart and soul and cast myself into this eternal furnace for those who will never repay me or profit me one iota, who cannot even stay awake with me one hour in a time of greatest need. Why should I give an eternity in unimaginable torment when they will not even give me a few minutes of their attention? That's what he could have said. But he didn't say it. Why? Because he was true. He was faithful, faithful to you and to me, faithful to the ones who have slept on him. And in his faithfulness today, you need to see the gospel. You see, at the very beginning in a garden, God comes to the very first Adam and he says this, Adam, obey me And if you do, I will bless you. And what did Adam do? He didn't. And from then on, he has come to every other son of Adam. He has come to me and he has come to you and he's said the same thing. He's made the same deal. Obey me and I will bless you. And guess what we do? We don't. And here in another garden, God comes to the second Adam, his son, Jesus. And he says to Jesus, the complete opposite. He says this, obey me and I'll crush you. And guess what Jesus does? He obeys. In love for us, he was faithful. In love for us, he stayed true to us, even knowing we will not be true to him. But he finished his rescue. None were lost that wanted to be saved. And that's what it means to be a Christian. To see the only obedient, faithful person in history treated as disobedient for you. To accept his obedience as your own and to be treated as perfectly obedient by God. That's the gospel. And that's the gospel that saves us. But it's also the gospel that makes us faithful. Because no other person, no other thing, no other idea has done for us what Jesus has done. His faithfulness changes us. I want you to think Of the men that Shackleton saved those 22 guys I want you to imagine what the rest of their lives looked like when it came to their relationship with Shackleton think about their relationship from then on what were their actions toward him what were their thoughts toward him I can answer it with one word they were faithful to him because they were saved by his actions and we have one who has saved us from infinitely more peril than just being stranded on an island. And what should our response be to a savior like that? Faithful. Faithful. If there's any pressure on you to split right now, to be a different person today than you vowed yesterday, the only way that pressure comes off is to see what he has done and say this, if he died in the dark for me, I can live in the light for him. That's faithfulness. And the Holy Spirit wants more of that for you today. So, Let me give you finally two ways you can cultivate faithfulness in your life this week. Number one is to take an inventory and just ask yourself this. How has God come through with even more than I expected? That's the question. There's an old hymn that says, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And that's kind of the exercise. Think about how God has come through with even more than you expected, and that will drive you to faithfulness. Number two, there are people falling asleep on you. And as I say that, you probably have people flashing through your brain who you will agree, yeah, they're falling asleep on me. Here's the thing. In light of Jesus's faithfulness to you, how can you follow the Holy Spirit this week and be faithful even to those people around you who are falling asleep on you? Thank you for listening to uh, content this way. Let me pray for you, and I hope that this will lead you into more faithfulness. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who went to an eternity of hell for us. And even when we were asleep in the dark, he did this for us. Help us to focus our eyes on him. Help us to see his sacrifice, his faithfulness. And may his faithfulness lead us to change into followers who are